We've been in a series called Woven uh, the last several weeks, and um, this series is just kind of us praying, thinking through uh, what it means to be the church, what it means uh, uh, to surrender ourselves to the Spirit of God and let Him make something beautiful. And uh, we've learned a lot. I'm going to get to kind of reiterate some of the things that we've talked about. Um, But I wanted to start here this morning um, with a quote from a pastor named John Tyson, who who ministers in New York City. And he describes the church as a creative minority, as a creative minority. So I want to read this as kind of a framework for how we can think uh, this morning. A creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knit together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. A web of stubbornly loyal. Isn't that such a great phrase to think about church? Stubbornly loyal relationships. And we, we live together in this network, this web of persons. Um, and that's a, that's a network that God is weaving together. That he is knitting together. That's his work. We don't knit ourselves together. He does that. But we continue to come uh, and submit to his vision for the church. So we, uh, we are meant to do this life together. In the last 18 or so months, if, if there's anything that we've learned, it's that isolation is not good for us. That's not best for us. Um, when God says... It's not good for man to be alone in the beginning. He's not kidding. (laughs) And he wasn't just talking about marriage. He's talking about the way he created us, the way he designed us, our nature. And he created us to be in communion with him and in communion with one another. And that's his plan. That's that's what he's working out within the church. Uh, If you're going to catch me binge watching a show, it's going to be the Alone series on the History Channel. Have you, have you heard of it? Yes. I have a witness. It's basically, uh, they take 10 contestants, they drop them out in the middle of the harshest climates, and they have like a knife and, a, and, a, and an axe and a tarp and a sleeping bag, and that's it. And whoever can survive the longest in, this, in these hard, hard conditions wins. Whoever doesn't tap out wins you know, a big chunk of money. And so they are just surviving. Here's the deal. These guys are pros. These girls are pros. And, and you can tell they could, they could live out there for a long time according to their survival skills. They're making boats out of pine cones. They're, 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 making, they're making little guitars out of driftwood. It's just crazy. You're like, what? Who are these people? But what gets them? What is it? being alone they start to go crazy they start talking to them you know they're they're just talking to themselves but they're in their head they start crying for no reason one of the toughest guys on the show um he he, this guy's like i'm he's gonna just he's gonna just move there forever they're building these elaborate shelters log cabins with chimneys and and uh man so this guy he befriends a squirrel (laughs) he starts talking to the squirrel and it becomes his buddy. He's alone. He's talking to the squirrel. And guess what? He gets too hungry. Yeah. Exactly. Not his friend. And he ends up, you know, eating his friend. And, and guess what? He weeps. I mean, the burliest, toughest dude. He's just, he's like weeping. Because he killed his own friend. So ridiculous. Um, so, so this is an extreme example, right? <laughs> but it's obvious that we're just not designed, e- even the ones that could seemingly handle it, we're not designed to be alone. We're not zo- uh, uh, designed to be isolated. Um, on the other hand, being an intentional community is really hard to. There may be times where you want to tap out. Being known and vulnerable and honest is not easy at all. And it doesn't necessarily come naturally to us either. 
To be the church the way the Bible calls us to be is risky business. It's going to involve pain, frustration, wounds, victories, triumphs. You may feel betrayed, misunderstood, but you'll also see beauty. You'll see compassion. You'll see self-sacrificing love. You'll see confession. You'll see repentance. You'll see reconciliation. You'll see healing. And it's beautiful. So as we wrap up this woven series, and this is really just like, it's like a family meeting, right? We're kind of talking to one another in this, in this sermon series. As we wrap up this woven series on what it means to be the church, I want us to consider four things um, that I believe need to be true in order for us to be a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knit together in a living network of persons practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of the world. Four things that I think need to be true. And, and, and they're, they're going to be behind me. The first one, covenant, this idea of covenant, must be stronger than consumerism. Compassion must be stronger than criticism. Unity must be stronger than uniformity. And togetherness must be stronger than technology. So I'm going to spend the majority of the time, or a lot of the time, on that first one. Because I think what flows from looking at the world through a consumer lens is, is, is what? We become experts at critique. And we can ultimately become critical of everything around us. Everyone around us. We take that posture on. So compassion must be stronger than criticism. Next, if we think like a consumer, we'll trust our instinct way more than we should. Remember, the heart is deceitful above all else. We'll trust our instincts way more than we should, and we'll end up believing that everyone should think like us. And what this does is it makes us the the plumb line in which we assess others, which we decide what is true. And this type of thinking creates informational vacuums, echo chambers, rather than rich diversity of approach and outcome. So unity must be stronger than uniformity. And then finally, if we come at technology as a consumer, we will conclude that tech can solve our problems of communication, our lack of intimacy with one another, and can serve as a primary arbiter on most all human interactions. We'll actually believe that. We'll practice that. We'll believe that technology can replace actual physical presence with one another. So togetherness must be stronger than technology. So this morning, um, I'm going to argue that these four things need to be true for us. And I'm not talking about just the the broad church. I'm saying the Parks Church right here in McKinney, who who are sitting together now and in the previous service. We, these things need to be true about us. We don't need to hope that they're true about everybody else. Let's just look internally. Let's look at our own heart and our own life and see what God might do. So to start with this idea of covenant over consumerism, I want to define covenant as this. Covenant's a promise. It's a commitment. It's a deep promise made to God, to the local church, and to yourself. In the context of this talk, I'm referring to the promise we make to one another before God, that we're committed, that we're in. And and again, we're talking about the Parks Church, okay? We're talking about the Parks Church. Uh, Membership, you've heard membership, church membership. Uh, Here at the Parks Church, we don't call it membership, we call it covenant partnership. Because we we don't believe in, in in a meaningless membership, that you would sign a card and just join the club, or you would transfer a a self-identified membership somewhere else. Um, But it's a commitment, a deep, deep thing. So the the, the most common example is the example of marriage, right? Who have have anyone been to a wedding, been married, you understand the premise when two come together. It's this biblical idea that you covenant with one another before God. To be faithful through thick and thin. It's not, unless we go, I'm going to commit, I do Unless we go broke, and then I'm, I don't. 
or unless you get too sick and it gets in the way of my career. Nothing like that is ever said at a ceremony. It's I'm in no matter what. Sickness, health, rich, poor, I'm in. What, a, what an insane thought. So that's the premise. And, and this commitment that we're talking about, it's the crystallization of that unity. So in the same way, when we think of church, um, there's a covenant being made. Now, the Bible doesn't come out and say, hey, uh, verse dot, 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 you need to sign an official covenant, go through a class, and then you're right with God and with people. It doesn't say that. And in fact, the Bible doesn't actually ever really define church in one single definition. Instead, we see metaphor. And anytime we see metaphor or analogical language uh, in the Bible, we can know that the thing that it's attempting to explain, to describe, is so comprehensive, so rich, so beautiful a thing that it can't be contained in one single definition. So the Bible uses all these different metaphors. And I want to talk about three really quickly, three metaphors that the Bible uses to describe unity, to describe covenant, commitment to one another, uh, togetherness. The first one is family, the idea of family, this brother-sister language that's just ubiquitous everywhere in scriptures. The next is uh, a vine and its branches. The next is a human body. And these are examples uh, to show us how to think about the church, but also how to function as the church. They're not just theoretical, but they're really practical examples for us. So the first one, church is family. This is that idea of the household of faith. Um, Galatians 6.10 says this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Let's do good to one another, especially those that are part of the family of believers. This idea of family is is a pretty wild concept. You you, you know, you don't get to pick what family you you get born into, right? You don't get to go, oh, I'm going to... I, I like this. I, you just get born to the parents, to the crazy uncles. You're in. No matter what, you don't get to choose. And it's this idea of an inseparableness. In Paul's letters to the church, he uses this word brethren, which is this reference to brother, sister. Brothers and sisters. My brothers, my sisters. In his epistles, he uses it 130 times. What is he trying to communicate? He's trying to get it through our heads that you're now part of a family. It's not a club, it's a family. And the New Testament just uses constant familial language. Second is the vine and branches, right? This is Jesus, John 15, you know it, abide in me uh, and I in you. There's this togetherness, this inseparable, like a branch can't survive on its own kind of thing. Uh, Jesus is the trunk of this ever-growing, beautiful vine, and believers are sustained and animated by being connected to the spine, which in turn, they're connected to one another. We're connected to one another. And uh, apart from this connection, apart from this connection with Christ and his branches, we can't do anything. It's the way Jesus talks about it. It's like this is not a, this is not a, like a negotiable thing. Apart from Christ and his that his, him being the vine, we can't do anything. And, and we just see this all throughout our, our Bible, all throughout the Bible, and specifically at the very beginning of our Bible. What does God say? He says, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. And so when God is saying this, what he's saying is to be fully human. You gotta listen. Genesis, man, we've got to listen. To, to be fully human is to be together with others. It's in our God-given nature to be bound to others. We cannot survive on our own. Ronald Rollheiser in his book, The Holy Longing, he says this banger of a quote. <clears throat> our quest for God must be consistent with our nature. Hence, it must have, as a non-negotiable part, a communitarian dimension. Ecclesiology, church, by definition, is precisely that. 
Love this. Walking to God with a community. What a beautiful example. To attempt to make spirituality a private affair is to reject part of our very nature and walk in a loneliness that God himself has damned. Yet we're tempted by that. So it's a non-negotiable that we follow Jesus by committing to walk together with one another as we follow him. Lastly, a human body. We see this example. You know it in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. uh, We see this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So it is with the church. Verse 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Where his body, it's that hand, foot, Christ is the head, We're all different. We all make up different pieces to that body. And Jesus goes on in in a couple places to carry this metaphor into some pretty serious territory. You remember when Saul is persecuting Christians. He's going around. He's imprisoning, overseeing the, the, the killing of Christians. He is going through the community creating uh, havoc, um, persecuting them. And what happens? He's on the road to Damascus. Jesus shows up, he gets kicked off his donkey or horse or whatever he's riding, and he has this vision in which it blinds him, but he has this vision and and Jesus shows up and says, what? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church, my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? So that's something really significant. And when Jesus says this, what he's saying is, if you persecute them, it's as if you're persecuting my own body. What a crazy thought. It's as if you're persecuting my own body. So I want to take a minute in light of that. We have brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now that are facing this and worse The church in Afghanistan is under heavy attack. Martyrdom for many is imminent. And so my heart is breaking. This week the news has been suffocating. That we're over here and they're over there. And our lives look so dramatically different. But I want us to pray. We're going to stop right now and pray in the middle of this talk. And these are the things I want us to consider. We're going to pray. And we're going to do this together. We're going to pray for um, the protection of Christians. And and the protection of innocent lives. We're going to pray for the church to explode in Afghanistan. Persecution for the church historically is like pouring gasoline on a fire. It always does the opposite of what you think it's going to do. So we're going to pray for the gospel to go forward like never before. We're going to pray um, that people there grow weary and tired and exhausted of Islam. And that that is no longer an answer for them. That's no longer a way forward. And that Jesus shows up. And, 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 and they get visions. Whether or not there's missionaries or, or, or they just get visions of who Jesus is. In the same way that Saul was kicked off his horse, I pray the Taliban will be kicked off their machinery and their guns and kicked to the ground. And they have Saul moments. And their paws are raised up out of the Taliban. So we're going to pray and... And we're going to go to God. He knows what's best. He knows what's good. He's still in control. So let's pray for our brothers and sisters. Let's pray for healing. Let's pray for the gospel. Let's pray for protection over our soldiers that are there. The soldiers. Anyone that's fighting for justice. Let's pray over them right now. Come on, let's go to God. Jesus, we come to you. We know that you see everything. But my goodness, our hearts are broken. Creation is groaning, God. We're groaning. We see the world around us. We see what's happening in Afghanistan and we're broken by it. So we pray that you would intervene, that you would come in and you would capture hearts. God, you would stop violence. You would protect innocent lives from being lost. You would protect Christians and the church, the underground church, God. I pray for for just your hand of protection, God. You know all of the details. You know every soul that's there in in that country and around the world, God. But we specifically pray that you would pour your spirit out. You would bring peace in the middle of this chaos.
that you would turn some Saul's into Paul's. I pray that Islam, for many, just runs out of gas. And they're met with a Christian, or they're met with a vision of a man in white. They don't know his name, but they know he's, he's hope. Jesus, work a miracle. Holy Spirit, cover, cover the Christians there. Jesus' name. Amen. Oh man, that is heavy. That is really heavy. <clears throat> so, what we just walked through is just a, a real brief picture of what the Bible has to say about the church. And there's so much more. But for our purposes, I just wanted to touch on those things. So, when, you, when we hear the words of Jesus, when we hear the words of Paul, when we look at the book of Acts, we see that the, the church is much, much more serious a thing than how we typically treat her, how we approach the church, more significant than how we take the take-it-or-leave-it approach sometimes, depending on our schedules, preferences, self-assessed needs. So I want us to look now um, at how we're tempted to substitute covenant with consumerism and call it good. And in doing so, we often reduce the church into a Sam's Club or a Costco, an entity that exists to meet our needs. All of, the, all of us in this room, if you're breathing, all of us in this room were born into a society that has relentlessly endeavored to shape you and I into insatiable consumers. We've been born into this Consumers of goods, services. It's literally what our economy is built on. It's our largest export. When people think about Americans, they think about, wow, they, they have so much stuff. They have such beautiful lives. They, they, are, they, they are living the dream. Uh, the world often looks in, in, in that regard. Through marketing, psychology, Strategic campaigns, you and I have been made to see ourselves as unbiased, well-informed consumers. <laughs> uh, that's a true laugh right there. That, that is it. We, we, that's what we think. That's how we walk around the world. Like, I'm unbiased. I'm objective. I know what's best. So consumerism is the primary posture of our society. And it believes that people... Places and things exist for my good. We are then the judge of whether something is quality, right? Whether something is worth committing to, worth buying, worth investing into. And this is how we relate to everything. So it's really difficult to try to turn this off when we think about church, when we think about community. It's really hard because it's... In our blood, so to speak. It's in our blood. Consumerism, it misshapes our understanding of commitment to the church of covenant. It it misshapes our marriages, right? If you approach your spouse as the answer, or if you approach your spouse... As the problem, you're in trouble. The problem is always in you, not outside of you. So consumerism misshapes us. Because what it means to be Christian means that you're a vital part of Christ's church. And you're committed to it because he says it's good. Because the scriptures say, this is good. That's Why we're a part of the church. It's not you assess it and see if it's right for you. See if it's on brand for you. Right? It's not how you approach buying a computer or shopping on Amazon. Something wholly different. So we need to interrogate ourselves on this one. Okay? That's what we're doing. That's the point of uh, this series and, and, and these talks is to interrogate ourselves 
and go, are we just fans consuming a product? Because that's how we approach almost everything. Are we just fans consuming church as a product? Or are we embracing this covenantal church living that is defined by the scripture? So our lives, nearly all our interactions are consumer ones. So we must protect one another from reducing this church, the church, down to a product or service to consume. A defining mark of consumerism settling down into, the, into our thinking is when this happens. Your ability to critique the church outgrows your compassion for the church. When your ability to see the cracks, to call things out, when that outruns your love for the church, something has settled into your bones that's not of God. So compassion must be stronger than criticism. Compassion must be stronger than criticism. This is what I like to call the Yelp syndrome, okay? Go with me on this one, the Yelp syndrome. Uh, have you ever been uh, headed out to a restaurant? You're in the car. You're going to, let's go to a new place. Um, can someone pull it up on their phone, pull up uh, Yelp and see what the reviews are? Pull up Google reviews, see what's going on in this place. And sometimes it's really helpful, Right? If someone goes like, I've seen a rat every single time, you're like, okay, we will avoid that place. But often it's this painful social commentary on how we tend, how humans tend to treat one another, especially when a consumer mentality is at play. It's scary. (laughs) I'm I'm for feedback. Constructive feedback is good. But some of these are wild, folks. And this is how it starts. I don't usually write reviews. That's <laughs> the food was fine if you're into mediocre American cuisine. The atmosphere was way too loud. We could barely hear each other talk. Gross. <laughs> I promise I've not done this, but... The menus came out so slow, we were so hungry, by the time our food got there, the food was cold. It's as if the staff didn't care at all whether we would return. So we will not be going back. (laughs) And that's it. It, Over and over and over again, these... The Yelp syndrome creeps into us. It's funny, it's painful... But this is how we often think about community. Because we approach most situations and relationships as a consumer, we get so good at seeing the cracks. We get so good at seeing the weaknesses in those around us. And then we feel like it's incumbent upon us to correct, to fix, to call out, to give feedback, to discuss with others how someone needs to change. When this skill is applied to the broken, messy, sinful Christians around us. It creates an anti-grace culture. And it's destructive. It, it, it does nothing but destroy. So as forgiven, as forgiven followers of Jesus, our instinct towards others should be compassion and not critique. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32 reminds us of this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion. That it may give grace to those who hear And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, let all that clamor, drama, let all of that slander be put away. Along with malice. Be kind to one another. Therefore, be kind to one another. Tender hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ 
forgave you. Colossians 3, 12 and 13 says this, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, 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 bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Because the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. You also get to forgive. The Christian community is chocked full of opportunities to see all sorts of inconsistencies. All sorts of cockroaches in the kitchen. <laughs> Weaknesses in, in, in each other. And if there's not a bearing with one another, a compassion with one another... There will not be a one another. You'll think there is. You'll walk around thinking there is, acting like there is, but there won't actually be a community in which you say you believe, claim to believe. It won't be there because the culture is anti-grace. I'd love for you to do this experiment this week. Pick a day, two days, go the week, and, and just commit to only being encouraging to those around you. And see what happens. Only being loving. And the, the only words that you let come out of your mouth are those that fit the occasion and those that build one another up. And see what happens. See what happens to the people that God has put in your life. See what happens to you. See how it actually shapes you probably more than anybody else. Remember how Christ cares for you. Remember how he cares for me. He does not critique us to change. He mercies us to change. He compassions us to change. He loves us to change because people grow where they are loved. That's where people grow. People grow where they're loved. If you want someone to grow, if you want someone to change, love them. A good way to demonstrate compassion is simply this, just to be slow to speak. Just to be slow to speak. People are complex. Situations are complex. So pray for one another. May prayer be more our instinct than the compulsion to give feedback. That's too Sam. May prayer be my instinct more than compulsion to give feedback. When we're in the habit of always giving critique, feedback, we quickly just become a critical person. That's what you become when that becomes your instinct. So compassion must be stronger than criticism. Unity must be stronger than uniformity. Unity must be stronger than uniformity. This is that stubbornly loyal commitment to one another. It's, it's not necessarily a commitment to agreement, uh, but it's a commitment to remain when there is a disagreement. Loyalty isn't always agreement or alignment, but it's, it's a shared trust that you won't disappear as soon as there's conflict. And there will be conflict. There will be conflict. Stubborn loyalty is also this. It's a resilient commitment to repairing broken relationships. What a difficult thing to do. I still am trying to figure this one out. What a difficult thing to do to repair broken relationships, to walk through some of those relational fires. Man, we're just all so broken. We have this book at, at our house. It's a, it's a kid's book and we read it at bedtime. And it's called, We're Going on a Bear Hunt. And they, it's like this, this family goes through all of these challenges. And the, the main line is, we can't go over it. We can't go under it. We've got to go through it. And if that is not a message to the church, if that's not a message to broken people living in messy communities, you can't go over it. You can't go under it. You have to go 
through it, and it's painful sometimes, but it's worth every minute of it. You're not going to do it perfectly, but it's beautiful. And God's doing something in you. He's doing something in me when we do that. When we commit to be stubbornly loyal to one another, he can work in that environment. Jesus says in John 13, 34 and 35, I think we've used this in this sermon series even, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the proof of your and I's discipleship is not scripture memorization. It's not how we pray. It's not how many Bible studies we attend. Which those are good things. We should be doing those things. But the proof of our discipleship is how we love one another. That's what Jesus said. The proof of our discipleship is how we love one another. Jesus goes on to say this in Luke 6. He says, If you love, and he's speaking to his people, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? If you love those people that love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Even the pagans, they got that figured out. What credit is that to my church, my people, my disciples? In my whole life, I've not seen the amount of division that's in the church than is right now. I'm not not trying to be dramatic. I just haven't seen this type division. It seems we've taken on the way of the world, the way the world loves one another as our own. And it speaks nothing of Christ. It's not compelling to the world. We love those who like us. We love those who love us. We love those who agree with us. But as soon as there is disagreement, we're out. We move. We ghost. We disappear. We will not be back to that restaurant. And in disagreement, division is really obvious, right? That's really obvious. Division is going to come up dis- because of disagreement. It's going to be very obvious. But I want to I prod a little bit deeper. I want to go a little bit deeper. When uniformity is stronger than unity, division can simply surface in our differences from one another. And just our differences. Maybe we're not even disagreeing, but just we, we're just different. We are all uniquely made by God. He has made each one of you, each one of us, unique. We're all divinely hardwired in different ways. Our talents, our abilities, our quirks. I said in the first service, and some of y'all got quirks. Our personalities. We're, 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 we're designed differently. What a gift. I want to paraphrase author... Paul David Tripp, uh, he says this, When we believe the hardwiring of others is the reflection of the creative glory of Creator God, we can treat others with respect and celebrate the vast differences. When we see those differences as the reflection of Creator God, we can celebrate those vast differences. And it's then in the combining of those vast differences that we're pushed beyond what we would otherwise be. It's really beautiful. This is the plan of God for our lives. Not that we would get into homogeneous groups and and, and have social clubs and meet together and affirm one another's consistent beliefs and, uh, and affirm bias. That's not the picture God paints. But it's this beautiful, diverse gift that shapes us and forms us. And it's going to be done through disagreement. And it's going to be done through acknowledging that we're just different. We're just different people. So when you're rubbed the wrong way by someone who's different than you. 
when it bothers you that someone has a different hard wiring than you. And you ridicule them. Or you belittle their differences as less than. You're saying two things. One, you're saying, I'm a better product of the creator than you are. I'm a better product of the creator than you are. When you make that judgment, you're saying another thing. I'd make a better creator than creator God. This, that, that thing, it's fueled by gossip. That's where gossip lives. If I've seen that sin come up in my life, it's fueled by seeing people as different and, and, and rising in superiority and then feeling like I can say things about that. But Christian love does not deride, speak against, or indict anyone that's not present to represent themselves. A new command I give you, love one another like I've loved you. This is gossip and it's unloving. If the person you are talking about is not present, refrain from saying, refrain from texting anything that is explicitly or implicitly negative. That implicit one, that'll get you. Well, I wasn't being mean. I was just saying what was, what happened, you know. They're just different than me. Man, this is a real struggle for us. It's a real struggle for me, all of us. There's no one that's like, I don't really struggle with. (laughs) It's, It's a struggle for us. It was a struggle for the church. Because 2,000 years ago, Paul said something in Ephesians, and it's serious. He said this in Ephesians 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. 2,000 years ago, Paul says, I beg you. I beg you. Church, church that I love, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He's begging the church not just to maintain unity, but to do it how? Eagerly, urgently, I beg you. For this is how people will know. If you say that you want the church to have credibility in the world that you live in, this is how they'll know that you eagerly try to fight for unity. So when division happens, when conflict inevitably comes up, this is our prayer, believer. Spirit of God, show me where I need to repent. Not, Spirit of God, give me discernment to call out and rebuke my brother in love. No, Spirit of God, show me where I am off, where I need to repent. And this is not our instinct. This is difficult. But that has to be our prayer. Your humble repentance, my humble repentance is the only path for unity. It's the only path. So the church must be built on unity and not uniformity. I know we're going a little bit long, but this is the last point. Togetherness must be stronger than technology. And this will be, the, this will be a pillar of conversation for us as the church our whole life. Adults right now are spending about 11 hours a day in the digital world. Um, students, nine. And those are, those are probably older statistics. It's just becoming more and more prevalent in everything that we do. Technology is not going anywhere. It's integrated into every human experience nearly. And, and this point isn't 
necessarily about 2020 or Zooming or streaming services uh, during COVID. Man, we had to pivot for good reason. And, 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 and there's some of that still happening. And we're going to uh, graciously continue to move forward in this environment of disagreement often. But this, this idea of technology being stronger than um, togetherness, this is more a point on, on how we, we actually interact with one another. It's more about our view in general about, about technology or, or lack thereof, lack thereof of development on, on how we think about this thing that we are constantly before 24-7. It's about the deep-seated practice and belief that technology is a substitute for togetherness or a worse and, and, and more prevalent sentiment that interacting through technology can just simply re- replace being together uh, completely which is, is becoming a preferred sentiment. I can just... Technology is not a sustainable replacement for physical presence. The more technology we use to interact with others, the more disconnected we ultimately find ourselves. We're more attached to our devices than we are people, and it's so obvious. Because technology, a digital world, promises so much. It promises that it can fix intimacy, but it's just emptiness on the other side of it, on the other side of 11 hours a day. We prefer texting to talking. We prefer messaging to meeting face-to-face. And these preferences, again, a posture of consumerism says, I know what's best, and that is... Digital distance, I need that buffer. Controlled, editable environments, that's how we're learning to communicate, that we can just edit everything. No real-time conversations, because those are hard. Curated profiles, curated pictures. And it's not working, friends, and it won't ever work for the church. Romans 1 11 and 12, something special here happens. Paul's writing to the Roman church and he says this, For I long to see you. He says, I long to be with you. That I may impart to you some spiritual gift. To strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Both yours and mine. The reason Paul isn't specifying this gift, and why it cannot be received apart from a a personal visit um, is because it's him. He himself, his physical presence is the gift. He longs to be with them in the flesh. And he's ambiguous as to the form of the spiritual gift because he doesn't necessarily know what they need, probably. Isn't that true? From afar, you, you may think you know, but when you get close to someone, you're like, oh, I realize now the situation's like this. And this is actually what they were saying. And this is what they meant because of physical presence. I see, their, I see their, uh, their facial expressions and their body language. I'm able to read this situation so much better. And I can see that their spiritual need is this. And that's what Paul's saying. When I come to you, I can deliver some spiritual gift that is going to help you. And it's going to help me. It's a real beautiful thing. But he's saying, I've got to be present. Digital connection can serve as a great tool. But it can never replace physical presence. Our presence... Our bodily presence is a gift that we get to give one another. So, as you consider going from this room, if you consider, as you consider what it means to be the body of Christ, what it means to be a vine or a, a, a branch in, in, the, in the vine of Christ, what it means to be a part of the family of God, brothers and sisters together, remember that nothing replaces face to face, heart to heart presence so don't settle for podcasts or content consumption don't settle for that do some of that that's great but don't say that's church or that's me getting fed because you're coming at it like a consumer and that's not what jesus meant when he said be a part of my body you're my you're my body he has something so much more robust so much more beautiful 
dig into an embodied existence with one another. So there's a lot to think about this morning. And I, I want to encourage you. Uh, this, I didn't go through this and go, oh, man, I'm really doing great at this. I went through this and go, oh, my gosh, I'm a disaster at some of these things. This is a long game. And Christ does not come to you, and he does not critique you to change. Please don't see this message as some sort of criticism at you and a jab. But Christ mercies you. He compassions you. He loves you. And he wants us to create an environment of love so that growth can happen. True growth. And it's hard work. It's not easy, but it's a long game. And it's to be worked out over our whole life. You do not have to have this perfect. So I pray that the Spirit weaves us together through stubbornly loyal relationships so that we might be a more beautiful church to the watching world and to one another. Wouldn't that be awesome if we looked at the church and go, man, she's bruised, but she's beautiful. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, I, even in talking about this today and being in this series on Woven, um, I just admit, I confess, I, I, I'm inadequate. I, I, I come with insecurities. I come with judgments. I come with sin, and that's what I bring to the table, but you have invited us together. You've invited us to be together with one another. You've not called us to isolation. You've not called us to privatize faith, but a together faith. And so we're just honest before you, and, and we say, we need, we need your spirit. We can't discern everything that needs to happen or how we need to treat one another. But we have to come to your word over and over again and submit over and over again and repent over and over again. And I just pray that's our rhythm. We don't have to be experts on anything except the love of Christ. May we be experts in the love of Christ. May we be humble, gentle, patient. When there is a correction to be made, when there is sin, Lord, let us come in love and say the hard thing, but do it in love. So I pray that we would create an environment around us and, and in our homes and in our, our communities and our community groups and praxis groups and formation groups and our partnership, our covenant partnership with one another. May we make a culture of grace. May you make a culture of grace in us. And lead us in the way of everlasting. We love you, God. We're so thankful for your mercy and love for us. May we live in that this whole week. In Jesus' awesome name. Amen. Amen.